Coming up on this edition of Health Styles, we sit down with Sarah Bush Lincoln pulmonologist and critical care physician, Dr. Jeremy Topin. As a lung specialist, Dr. Topin will address diseases like COPD and emphysema. He'll also talk about the long-term complications of COVID and how seeking treatment right away can help ease symptoms and possible hospitalization. He has a lot of great insight to share, so stay with us. We'll be right back. Having a trusted source of health care that's on your side. That's listening to you and addressing your health concerns is important. When you get excellent care close to home, we can do more together. We can achieve more together. We can be the kind of community we all want, and that's important. That's who we are. Sarah Bush Lincoln, trusted, compassionate care, right here, close to home. Welcome to Health Styles, the podcast. I'm your host, Lori Banks. I am so pleased to welcome Dr. Jeremy Topin to the show. Dr. Topin has been with Sarah Bush Lincoln since October of 2020. He is a pulmonologist and critical care physician. Needless to say, he has been a little busy and we appreciate him taking the time to be on the show. Dr. Topin, tell us a little more about your role and what you do. So I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician uh, and I wear a couple of different hats. Um, the, the main hat I've been wearing for the last year and particularly the last few months is as a critical care physician, as an intensivist. Uh, particularly with COVID as our, our, our volume of patients with COVID and, and severe pneumonia has gone up, uh, that's been the, the main hat that's taken up uh, most of my time. And that sort of being the quarterback uh, for the patients that are in the intensive care unit, all, all patients, and sort of coordinating their care, um, involving obviously the hospitalists who are very much involved, uh, other subspecialists, but I round down the patients every day. I help be the main go-to for the nurses, the patients and the families as questions come up, um, and really sort of the internist for the ICU. Uh, my other role I play in the hospital is as a pulmonary specialist. Uh, I'm available for consults uh, from, for the hospitalists or the surgeons. And uh, in that, anyone with any respiratory or lung-related illnesses or questions, uh, I often get asked to be involved. So patients who are here with bad, let's say, COPD or asthma exacerbations, I get asked to help in the management for them. People who are short of breath, but we're not quite clear why. It may be a heart or a lung or other issues. I'll often get asked to, to consult on those patients. Sometimes people have abnormalities on imaging, such as a chest X-ray or a CT scan. I can help uh, plan and manage the evaluation and workup of, of those abnormalities. And so uh, these patients are not as sick as those in the ICU. I'm much more focused from a lung standpoint for these patients. Um, and then the, the third hat which I, I wear is as an outpatient pulmonary specialist. And that one I, I started when I, I've been here now a year. It's been, uh, it's actually been time has flown here at Sarah Bush. But I did start by seeing outpatients as well, but things have gotten so busy in part due to the volume of, of ICU and critical care patients and, and really uh, Sarah Bush wanting to make sure that I was available in a timely and efficient manner for those critically ill patients we sort of limited and, and actually put on hold uh, me seeing uh, pulmonary outpatients, and that would be managing patients 
for their chronic asthma, for their emphysema, uh, for those that, again, are, are not sick enough to be in the hospital but need evaluations for uh, lung issues or abnormalities on scans or, or lung nodules or masses. Um, so uh, that's sort of the third hat that I wear that I'm not quite using right now, but look to in, in the future. We'll talk more about critical care and COVID in a little bit, but first I want to ask you about pulmonary issues. What are the most common areas that you treat? Uh, basically, I do see a lot of people with smoking-related lung injury or damage, and, and the biggest part of that would be smoking-related emphysema or COPD. So quite a fair amount of patients here have significant emphysema, COPD. I talk about those two, COPD and emphysema, because they're similar in overlap. And I guess if we did a Venn diagram of COPD, emphysema is a, is a subset of that. But that's really smoking-related injury and damage to the lung that causes sort of wheezing and shortness of breath and some structural lung changes that over time tend to cause uh, breathlessness with exertion. It can be mucus and phlegm production. It can flare and get, get acutely worse that needs some more aggressive treatment that often leads them into the hospital. And I get involved in helping to manage that acute worsening of their COPD, but also what can we do on discharge to help them have a better quality of, of breathing, of living uh, once they leave here and how to prevent them from getting readmitted again? Are there strategies that can kind of help decrease the risk of them getting a flare where they end up back in the hospital? So what are some of the treatment plans that you prescribe for those patients? Over the last, you know, 10 years or so, there's been a bit of an explosion of inhalers and inhaler regimens to help manage COPD and wheezing. And it's not one size fits all. Um, there are some subtleties and some differences in the medicines that are out there. Um, and we're learning that certain patients may do better with certain types of medicines. Some do better with all of them, you know, and so there are guidelines that are evolving and, and, and changing. Um, but we know that in some patients who have frequent exacerbations, being on what we call an inhaled corticosteroid can help decrease the risk of being readmitted to the hospital. And that, that's a huge benefit, but there are often risks of pneumonias with that. And so we have to kind of balance that out. Um, we know that patients who get admitted to the hospital have within the next year or so a risk of, of really some other uh, complications happening just uh, by, by the fact of them being sick enough to be in the hospital and that those patients, some of those may benefit by being on what we call triple inhaler therapy. So teasing that out, what suits a patient best and matching it with what their insurance plan covers and, and what's cost effective, um, as well as, you know, patients may have had complications or side effects of the medicines, trying to, to piece all that together, what's the best strategy for them on the way out the door. And we have a wonderful respiratory therapy team here as well, too, that helps to, uh, you know, kind of help bridge the patients to what often their uh, home O2 company or, or durable medical company has to kind of help make sure everything's in sync with their insurance plans, ability to afford, and, and what is being most effective for the patient. You mentioned that smoking is a big factor when it comes to COPD and emphysema. Are there any hereditary factors that can cause those issues? When it comes to COPD or smoking-related COPD emphysema, 
there's some interesting numbers here. Uh, I would say that 90% of people who have COPD smoke. But only about 10 to 15% of people who smoke will get COPD. So it's definitely a huge risk factor. It does run in families. And there, for COPD, there isn't a specific genetic test we, we do or need to do, but it definitely runs in families. So if you are a child of someone whose parent has COPD and smokes, you definitely are at more risk uh, to be one of those 90% people who, if they smoke, will develop that damage to the lung. There are certain genetic predisposition or diseases that help to, well, that, that put you at risk for developing COPD-like changes in the lung, one of which is called alpha-1 anatrypsin deficiency. It's a genetic deficiency of an enzyme that can lead to very early and more aggressive damage to the lungs and uh, in in mimic COPD. It definitely, if you smoke, you'll get it COPD much earlier and quicker, but you also, even in the absence of smoking, can go on to develop COPD. So when people come in at a young age, we often test for this. Actually, it's recommended that everyone with COPD be tested for alpha-1 antitrypsin. It's now a, a, a standard guideline, and we do that here in our offices uh, um, with the Christie Clinic docs who currently are seeing our outpatients. Aside from not smoking, are there other preventative measures we can take to prevent lung disease? Yeah, so I mean, in terms of um, occupational or uh, uh, injury, ex some sort of external force from uh, an exposure standpoint, um, tobacco smoke is definitely a huge one, and, and we should extend that out to vaping, uh, e-cigarettes, um, anything inhaled has the possibility to cause injury and damage to the lungs. Um, there's a lot of occupational related lung injury, uh, basically working in a closed environment in a factory setting with a lot of dust and or particulate matter. Um, definitely wearing masks help. Uh, we're all becoming much more relatively comfortable or familiar with masks and, and in particular uh, masks that have a high filtration rate such as N95s. Um, that, uh, you know, looking at your OSHA workplace guidelines. But I know sometimes it can be very difficult to wear, wear masks uh, in a hot, sweaty environment, but, but wearing appropriate mask protection, if that's what your job um, um, requires or exposes you to. I think, though, we have a lot of people working on the farms, and there's a lot of exposures to dust, uh, insecticides, particular matter, and I think being cautious of that um, and, again, wearing... Um, wearing mask protection as well and being cognizant of that because that can have a cumulative effect of over time accumulating damage in the lungs. There's also a, a host of acute inflammation that can cause, but, but those tend to be more obvious. People feel sick acutely and they come to the, the emergency room or their doctor and, and, and often has a better chance of getting better. It's more the chronic smoldering damage that, that we don't realize or people don't realize till it's kind of already progressed significantly. Let's talk about bronchitis and pneumonia. What is the difference between the two and how are they treated? You know, we use terms like bronchitis. I think um, people will use it, different people will use it for different things. It's not uh, very standardized in it. So I often do wonder when someone tells me they've had bronchitis or a doctor tells them bronchitis, I'm not sure exactly what to mean. I, I use it as a flare of a significant kind of coughing, chest congestion, maybe mucus. 
But I, when I tell people they have bronchitis, it's definitely not pneumonia. It's, a, it's inflammation of the bronchi, the breathing tubes. And most bronchitis is from a virus. And so most of those are short-lived or self-limited. Definitely with people with underlying diseases of the lungs like asthma or COPD, it can really stir and aggravate that. But the truth is most bronchitis don't need antibiotics. And we probably in general overtreat with antibiotics for that. Um, so, um, but uh, pneumonia, which is of the lung tissue itself, not the breathing tubes, but the lung parenchyma, that would correlate with you know, changes on, uh, you know, when you listen with the stethoscope, hearing some focal changes or seeing it on an x-ray, fevers, chills. You know, outpatient-wise, you know, there's very common antibiotics. We use Levaquin, azithromycin, Augmentin, doxycycline. Uh, you know, it really depends on someone's allergies or if they've had it before. Um, but there's some, a lot of good oral medicines that work really well. We do escalate that a little bit in the hospital. Um, but I think more importantly, people are often told they have bronchitis. And, and what I try to do is try to be a little more specific um, because, again, a lot of people think bronchitis, they think pneumonia. And, gotcha. and, and there, there's some, um, I think, overlap of those definitions. Um, we're often, amongst our doctors and how we communicate to patients, I think we can be a little sloppy sometimes with our terminology. There is a vaccine for pneumonia, which we do want to emphasize will not protect you from getting COVID. Dr. Topin, can you talk a little more about the types and how they work? There's two of them. Um, there's the, the pneumovax that we've had forever and ever and ever. Um, and, and then there's what's called Prevnar. Um, it's, a, it's a slightly different one that gives some additional benefit to uh, pneumococcal pneumonia. It's a specific type. Pneumonia comes in lots of different flavors. So there's lots of different bacteria. There's something called streptococcus or, or strep pneumonia, which is one of the more common ones. And this vaccine, the pneumovax, offers some very good protection for that. And you know, your internist, your general medical practitioner, our family practitioner, or nurse practitioner who you're seeing knows the guidelines of, of, of when to get that. Um, and that'll help prevent from developing pneumonia, but not all pneumonias. In researching and preparing for our interview, I came across a disease called sarcoidosis. Can you explain what that is? So first, sarcoidosis is a one of, uh, is a lung disease. Well, it's a disease, it's a systemic disease, but one of the more frequent organs or systems that it impacts is the lung or are the lungs, and so pulmonologists often are involved in the diagnosis, management, and treatment of sarcoidosis. It's sort of, an, it's for those that have never heard, or heard of it or have had an experience or a family member with it, it's sort of a weird disease because it often can cause changes to our organs without really any symptoms, or it can. Um, it is at, the, at a microscopic level it causes what's called granulomas, which is a type of inflammation or scarring that can occur in the body. But it's a very specific pattern that, that we see. And it tends to then kind of cause the symptoms that we see or that make us be suspicious of sarcoid would be some people who are having fevers and chills or sweats at night, people who are having some weight loss. It often can present with joint pains in the feet uh, ankles, uh, uh, hand, and, and elbows. It can cause a rash in some people, particularly on the shins of the legs. But it often can cause changes on that x-ray. 
And so that's actually one of the most common ways it presents where people will have changes on their x-ray or what they'll look like is having some swollen lymph nodes on the x-rays. Um, and it can mimic, sometimes people think it's a tumor or a cancer or lymphomas. But often as a lung doctor, we're asked to do a biopsy of these lymph nodes where we can do a scope where we take a, a small flexible tube about the size of a plastic straw. It's got a camera on the end and we can go through the nose or the mouth while patients are kind of sedated or, or slightly sleepy. And we can go to those areas of the lungs and do biopsies. And what we'll see is those granulomas, that pattern of inflammation that we talked about. Um, in general, patients often present without symptoms, but, they can, but often with some steroids, these symptoms abate and can go away and go in remission and, and never come back. So will those granulomas go away then? Um, you know, that's a great question. We often, when patients are feeling better, we don't go back and re-biopsy them. Um, what often happens though are the changes, the swelling of the nodes don't often go away. They tend to stay the same, they just don't get bigger. And patient symptoms kind of go away. And so we aren't often going back and looking, are the granulomas, that pattern going away? We just see are the patient symptoms gone? And if they are, we're like, you're good. And we don't necessarily treat till the swelling of those lymph nodes go away. My guess it would be that no, they don't go away, um, but that the granulomas themselves aren't causing the problem, um, or at least act, not having active granulomas. Um, so um, usually in most people, if they get good treatment for sarcoid, their symptoms go away, whether they were short of breath or they were having those night sweats or the aches and pains in the joints. Usually once they go away, in most cases, they do not come back. Um, if they do, that's a more challenging case, and, and we tend to refer those to some rheumatologists, and there's some other escalation of therapies. But luckily, most people, um, once they get treated, uh, they can be weaned off their steroids successfully, and, and the disease never develops symptoms again. For people who've had sarcoidosis, do they need to be concerned when they get a cold, pneumonia, or even COVID? Yeah, so I think in general, um, I think if someone has had sarcoid and it's quiescent or quiet or not active, um, you know, I think a, a cold, probably not really much of an issue. Uh, pneumonia, I'll be honest, if you're not on treatment for, for uh, sarcoid, meaning you're not on any of those immunosuppressive therapies, um, probably a pneumonia is not a big deal. Um, and most likely um, with COVID, you know, we probably don't have enough data of patients with sarcoid and COVID to be able to compare, or that data is not what I'm aware of. It, it's probably something we will eventually have. So I don't want to get ahead of, of, of um, specific information out there. I do think, though, having underlying lung disease, even if it's quiescent, would put you, if you, have, if you do get diagnosed with COVID, would put you in a category where you would qualify for getting uh, immunoglobulin therapy. Um, and so an underutilized um, therapy we have for patients with COVID, if, we, if you are an outpatient and you have COVID and it's early, you can qualify for uh, um, monoclo uh, monoclonal antibodies. And it's not really, a, people I think often in the community aren't aware, but that is something I would want to offer someone who has sarcoid or other underlying lung disease 
to help uh, decrease the risk of going on to develop severe COVID. Let's transition into COVID, which we know affects breathing and the lungs. Now, I know it's early, but what do you think are the long-term complications of having COVID? Yeah, so that's a, um, an important question. If we focus on just some of the patients here in the hospital who've had bad COVID, particularly with the lungs um, and some of the changes, we're seeing a fair amount of patients have, uh, you know, obviously complete resolution or interval uh, healing of the lung, but some still I, I've seen because they've come back for other reasons, scarring in the lungs, um, teasing out how clinically significant that scarring is, is, is variable because I've seen patients who have very minimal scarring but are still very short of breath with minimal exertion. And yet some patients who still have a lot of scarring are not short of breath at all. So there's definitely a component of long haul COVID that leads to breathlessness and shortness of breath that seem out of proportion to what is seen radiographically uh, to the lungs. And how that plays out over six months, a year, two years, we're still figuring out. But I, my guess is that those who have severe COVID, there's a significant portion, maybe upwards of 25%, that are still having significant lung issues after discharge. Now, is that because they're weak and deconditioned because they've been in the bed? We have some patients here four or five weeks, if not longer. Um, but there's definitely this breathlessness that we see in some patients inpatient. As I mentioned, I'm not seeing outpatients right now, but, but there are a fair amount of patients who are seeing our outpatient doctors who do have persistent dyspnea or shortness of breath who were not hospitalized. Um, you know, their, their fevers, chills, cough kind of got better, but they're still just winded weeks and months afterwards. And that tends to be multifactorial. Um, and, and, and again, we're still trying to figure out who develops that versus the brain fog that some patients are having. People are having trouble concentrating, forgetfulness, mood lability. So there's, a, there's a, a large range of symptoms that are now being called long haul COVID symptoms. There is a lot of research being spent on it. I think that's gonna be, when we talk about COVID, we're all focusing right now on control of COVID and vaccines and how to prevent it. I'm still trying to figure out for those in the ICU how to best treat it. The next story is gonna be the long haul and all these people, millions and millions of people have had COVID and, and it's gonna be the long-term problems that people are having that are gonna surface that we're still trying to, trying to understand. Booster vaccines are on a lot of people's minds and the mixing and matching of vaccine types. What are your thoughts and recommendations? For those that want the vaccine, and again, I encourage everyone to, to get the vaccine. It is our best tool to help prevent transmission. But more importantly, if you do get COVID, because they don't prevent COVID completely, but if you do get COVID, it's our best defense for you progressing to severe, life-threatening, and, and fatal COVID. Um, but um, there's been a lot of attention uh, um, come out recently because there are some data that suggest a more robust immune response if you, let's say, started with Pfizer and then get a Moderna booster, or if you started with Moderna and then get a Pfizer booster, that there may be a more robust antibody response. Um, also, if you got J&J, &J, they're now recommending a booster for the J&J, &J, but some people are like, well, wait, if I had J&J, &J, maybe I should get a Moderna and or a Pfizer booster. So I think the main thing out of all this is I think this is fine tuning, okay? Um, First and foremost, for those, the, the best thing is if you haven't had a booster, if you haven't had a shot, 
an immunization, get your shot, get your first shot. If you've only gotten one, get your second. If you fall into a category where you're immunocompromised, uh, older than 65, um, we recommend a booster. And, and then I would get the booster. But this is right now a small subset of patients. Um, the, again, as I keep talking about the story, the story's still being written. Um, there's so much research being done right now. Uh, the data that's coming out suggests a more robust antibody response. So I, I don't want to get ahead of the CDC because uh, these guidelines are, are evolving and changing literally weekly, if not daily. But I think um, right now, if you all want a booster and are eligible for a booster and you had Pfizer, but only Moderna is available, get the Moderna. I, I think that, the, you know, really go ahead and, and get what's available. And same thing with vice versa. If you had Moderna, but only the Pfizer is available, I would get the Pfizer. Um, what is our best strategy? Um, that is going to still take some time to tease out. Um, but uh, so I want to sort of take away a little bit of the worry. Um, I'll just be open. I had Pfizer right away. Uh, the Moderna data suggests that Moderna maybe has a little more of an enduring impact. But I got my booster for Pfizer. Uh, I, was, I didn't think twice about it. I knew about the mix and match strategy. Um, I just uh, I feel very comfortable and confident working with patients with COVID all the time with um, the Pfizer vaccine as I would with Moderna, as I would with J&J. You mentioned working with COVID patients. Can you talk about treating those patients and what therapies are available for those who are at home and in the hospital? Again, just to emphasize, our, our best strategy is to prevent COVID. Um, so vaccination. And then um, with vaccination, again, mask wearing, uh, social, social and physical distancing um, as well. Um, and I think incorporating into us as outpatients an early testing strategy because getting to treatment, if you do have COVID, we have more options to treat you earlier in the course of the disease. And our therapies are more effective the earlier we utilize them. So I often find patients who delay getting tested. They think they had COVID, they had an exposure, they don't really want to get tested for various different reasons, but they may get tested five, six, seven days when they're still feeling crummy. And they finally come to an emergency room 10 to 14 days later from when they had onset of symptoms. That's a very different picture for our therapies than if we had the opportunity to give, let's say, those monoclonal antibodies day three, day four of testing positive. So, so being able to treat COVID starts from when we know someone has COVID and I think so the first is if you think you have it, get tested, get seen, get checked out, evaluated. Because then we, have a, we do have therapies that are not perfect. They're imperfect, but they, they help. But they help more and their impact is more earlier on. So to start with the monoclonal antibodies we talked about, that's something you can get only as an outpatient. It does involve an IV. It's an infusion of about an hour. We do that um, at our infusion clinic now here, which is actually up in our endoscopy suite. Um, but your doctor, the ER, they should all be aware of how to plug you in from being diagnosed as an outpatient to do you qualify for this to being able to get you the therapy. Um, so I would highly encourage people to do that. Next, if you are sick enough in terms of getting hospitalized, um, the next sort of level of treatment would, well, would be steroids. Um, and once someone's oxygen level kind of goes below a certain level, 
um, you qualify for steroids, and we know that steroids help improve uh, survivability and prevention from going on to severe COVID. So that is something we give for a 10-day regimen. Um, and after that, there's sort of a range of different things. We give an antiviral called remdesivir. It's an IV medication. I think the more and more we study remdesivir, we're realizing not getting a whole lot of benefit. But, but currently we are, although in some countries we're not, but, but there's an IV antiviral you get for, for about five days. Then there is then after that, um, if you have very severe sort of in my ICU or heading towards my ICU, we have some very powerful immunomodulating medications that we can give that help tone down the inflammation, the severe inflammation that's going on in the lungs that's often contributing to that trouble getting oxygen. Um, there's been some studies that show benefit overall to patients who get these medicines. Um, they do come with risks. All of these medicines have possible side effects, and these tend to leave you a little more prone to bacterial infections. We monitor very closely. So, you know, but most of it at that point is supportive in supporting a patient while they're very ill with, you know, oxygen, uh, different breathing devices, uh, making sure they're getting adequate fluids but not too much, trying to make sure patients don't develop blood clots that they're more prone to developing. It's really more sort of attending to all the other issues when you're not feeling well and ill to hopefully buy time for your body to start to recover and heal uh, from COVID. But truly the best weapon we have out there is to prevent. And so I can't stress enough the importance of vaccinations. Um, and uh, you know, really that's the, the best, best recommendation we have out there right now. Dr. Tobin, you've literally been up close with COVID, treating patients in the ICU. Talk to us about what that has been like for you and your coworkers. I'm obviously biased by what I see, and I've been both now for like the last two months seeing such a, a high rate of, of COVID, severe COVID in the unit. Uh, and so um, I know a lot of us know people with COVID. Uh, I think in Coles County, if I'm not mistaken, at least as of two, three weeks ago, one in seven or one in eight people have been diagnosed with COVID. But in Coles County alone, one in 450 have died of COVID. Um, so it, it's impacted and touched on, on, I think, so many of us here. Um, and so w when I, you know, happen to see those that are the sickest of the sick, um, and I think it's, you know, a lot of what we're seeing now since March when we've had widespread vaccines available is very preventable. Um, you know, I, I really, we, right now we do talk about it being um, a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And so um, when I have someone who comes in the hospital sick, but they've had the vaccine, I breathe a little sigh of relief because I know statistically speaking, um, they're 10 times more likely to do better than those without, or to say it more accurately, those without the vaccine are 10 times more likely to die of COVID. And so that's even with all the therapies we have. So again, I'm, I'm, I sound like a broken record, but I think it's an important message to get out there. Um, the vaccine at this point um, is not as effective as we initially build it to prevent getting COVID, but it is extremely effective and our best tool at trying to prevent people from dying of COVID or having those long haul symptoms of you survive COVID, but now you, you continue to be profoundly short of breath and impacting your quality of life. And so, so 
so again, the vaccines, and that goes for the, for the flu vaccine as well. Um, it's our best tool. They're not perfect, but they are, they are excellent at doing the job that, that what I'm describing, and that is preventing severe life-threatening disease. So um, I, I've been hardened to see that the, the infection rate's going down in the county, our positivity rate. Um, I think that's multifactorial. I think the mandates or, or more people hearing about this and getting more vaccines, people still physically distancing and our mask wearing. Um, we're coming into the, the fall and the winter where we kind of get driven closer and, and indoors and, and, and around each other. So I, I wonder how that's going to drive things because we had a bit of a surge last winter as well. But, uh, you know, I just want, I want everyone to be as healthy as, as, as possible. I've had too many conversations with family members having to make awful decisions for very sick loved ones um, that, that uh, a, lot of, a lot of this doesn't need to happen with the vaccines that we have now. So that's my, my PSA, public health hat I just wore there. Flu season is not far away. Can you talk about symptoms and how they are similar or different than COVID? Great question. So. Um, flu symptoms and COVID symptoms are going to be extremely similar. Um, there's, there's a lot of overlap. We worried about this last flu season. We really thought there was going to be a, a, this surge of like double, uh, you know, the hospitals being overwhelmed, not just with COVID, but flu. And we were shocked where actually all the mask wearing and the physical distancing we were doing was very successful. And we had the lowest flu rate, I think, ever uh, that we've been able to really record. Um, our hope is that that's going to be the same thing again, but, um, you know, I think a lot of our behaviors and tolerance and, and all that is going to be a little bit different this year. That being said, we have, first of all, the best thing is get your flu shot, okay? Even though we had a light flu season last year, um, still uh, definitely should get the flu shot this year, and it's available. It's out there, whether it's here at Sarah Bush or Walgreens, CVS, your doctor's office, please get it. You can actually get the flu shot at the same time as your COVID vaccine. That's safe, effective, two-in-one. Um, and so um, highly uh, recommend that. Um, that being said, we do have some therapies for the flu. So that can help shorten the duration and severity of the flu illness. That works better the earlier in the flu uh, that, you, that you recognize it. So we have some very good nasal swabbing that can tease out the difference between COVID and the flu. And this can be done in some doctor's offices. It can be done in urgent care. It can be done in our emergency room. And so again, I think if you're feeling ill, there's several reasons to do it. One is just to make sure that you yourself are getting the best therapy possible if it is COVID or the flu. But also, if you have it, you're putting others around you at risk. And I'm sure that there are people maybe in your household or family who don't want COVID or don't want the flu that could change the, your behavior of how you're interacting in the house. And so I think for the health of those that are around you, you it helps to know to, to help minimize the risk of, of spread. There is value, instead of just suffering it out at home, there is value in getting tested, getting seen, to see if you may qualify for some of these earlier treatments uh, that are more effective the, the earlier we can give them to you. As we wrap up today, do you have any last thoughts that you'd like to share? A little bit on a personal note, it's been a fantastic year here at Sarah Bush. It's, October 1st was my anniversary date, um, and it's been, uh, it, it's been uh, an extremely uh, busy, um, exhausting, but rewarding time being here and helping out this community uh, at, at Sarah Bush Lincoln. And we're building our ICU, we're, we're increasing what we're able to do. 
Um, we, uh, we have a, a new ICU being built uh, that, uh, that uh, I think in the next uh, 24 months we're going to have an expanded, more family-friendly ICU. Our ICU is still, I think, from like the 1970s. It's the only part of this beautiful hospital that hasn't been updated and expanded. Um, so I look forward to what, what we've, to expand on, on the, the improvement we've already had, but I think the steps forward we're going we're gonna to be able to take. Um, I, I look forward to being able to offer my services in the outpatient world, but we have a fantastic group of pulmonary physicians through the Christie Clinic that have been here for years and have been wonderful partners. And again, as patients have been sick in the hospital and need outpatient follow-up, they've been great and, and we've been able to have some very smooth handoffs, as well as those patients that are cared for by the Christie Clinic docs when they come into the hospital, um, you know, I've been able to help take care of them. So. We really have been excited to be able to expand from a pulmonary and critical care standpoint what, what we're offering for, for people here, and, and people have been very gracious and appreciative. And I look forward to hopefully getting to know more of you, uh, more on the outpatient, uh, not ICU side, uh, when, when, it, when it comes down to it. But I just really appreciate having been accepted uh, by the community. I look forward to really, to really serving you all. Thank you, Dr. Topin, for all you've done this past year. We are so happy to have you. And that's our podcast. We thank you for taking the time to listen. To learn more about Dr. Topin and Sarah Bush Lincoln, please visit our website at sarahbush.org.